This week, we're starting another series, but it's pretty similar to the one that we have gone through just previously. Uh, the series is going to be on community, which is also a, the theme for our Providence SNL retreat. It seemed appropriate, as I was talking with not just college students, not just young adults, but even married folks, people who have grown up in this church and people who are new, community seems to be a tough issue that we all long for yet lack in experience. So we're going to be talking about community in, in the next three weeks. And we're going to look at a broken community, true community, and a holy community. So let me ask you a question as we think about this series and as we jump into it. Why is it so hard to have a relationship or a communion with God? Why is it so hard to read our Bibles and to pray and to come out to church? Why is it so hard to be intimate and feel close to God? Let me ask another question. Why is it so hard to have community amongst one another? Why is it so difficult when we all share a common background, interests, likes, when some of us have grown up in this church for years, when some of us are new but still Familiar, why is it so hard to experience community? Many of us experience that, engage with it, rub up against it, yet it seems to elude us on why it's so difficult. So I want us to think about that as we go into this series. If we think about community, it assumes that there is a shared struggle and a shared hope. If you look in any community or any context where community is happening, say a sports team, you see that there is a, a common shared struggle. Whether it's just laboring in the weight room, on the field, doing drills, there's a common struggle and there's a common hope. Not just to win games, but to become a brotherhood, to become a team. If you think about parenthood, there is a common struggle. Often, a child that comes in and joins the family. And if you think about it in the context with other parents, we share that with one another. We don't just complain, but we ask for advice. I'm amazed at how many different mommy and daddy blogs are out there. Not to just tell you what to do, but actually because they want to help. Because there is a shared suffering and there's a sense of, I know what you're going through. And the hope is that together as parents, our children will be healthy and turn out okay. If we Think about in the job place, there is a common struggle, whether it's your boss or whether it's just the working conditions, and there's a common hope of either celebrating together or eating or spending time together. It's no different in the Christian community. In the Christian community, there is a shared struggle and a common hope. The shared struggle is sin, and the shared hope is Christ. So today's gospel message is that community is broken by sin, but restored in Christ. And I have two points for us. I have good news and I have bad news. And we're going to start with the bad news. If we think about it, in Genesis, we are told that God created all things. He created the heavens and the earth. He brought order from chaos. He created all the animals, all the plants, everything, and even man. And when he created man, there was something special and particular about man. That he bore the likeness of God. 
that all the other created things didn't necessarily have a direct relationship with God, but when he created man, the creator God started a relationship with his created man. And that's something special that we see in creation, that man has a relationship with God. But in Genesis 3 here, we see the account of how sin has entered and disrupted and broke and damaged that community, that fellowship, that relationship. Not only did it break our community with God, it also disturbed the community that we want and ought to share with one another. So let's look at this account and see exactly what is going on. In Genesis 3, 1, the serpent comes to Eve, and he says this, did God actually say? The serpent doesn't come to Eve with an argument. He comes to Eve with a suggestion. Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And now the serpent generalizes Even though the Lord God commanded him to not eat of one particular tree, he says, did God really say? And did he say that you can't eat from any of the trees or any of the fruit? And Eve responds, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And we see as Eve recounts this, she almost exaggerates God's word. And then the serpent says, You will not surely die. You're not going to die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And so then now the serpent creates a space between Eve and God. And in that space, he plants this idea that perhaps we are autonomous. Perhaps that God's word is not true. Perhaps his heart for us is not what we thought it was. He creates this space, this gap, and he wants Eve to think that God is not telling her everything, that God is holding out, that God doesn't truly have their best interest in mind, and he does this by distorting God's word. But look at what God actually said in Genesis 2. He said this. He commanded the man. So yeah, did God actually say? Yes, he actually did say. What did he say specifically? He said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so we see here by the result of temptation from the serpent, who is Satan here, we see that man starts to have this sense of autonomy, that that we can decide for ourselves, that we don't have to listen to God, that we in fact don't need God, that a relationship, community, communion with God is not necessary. And so we see that when sin enters, it doesn't just enter like a sphere in the middle of the garden. It, just, it doesn't enter like it appears on somebody, someone near somebody. When sin appears, when sin enters, what it actually is doing is it is sinning against God. It causes man to sin against God. There is a relational tension now. The relationship is strained because of sin. And so what happens between God and man? We see God comes into the garden and he calls for man. And he says, where are you? 
And Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. What he's saying here is that I have fear, I have shame, and now I am hiding. When sin enters, when God is sinned against by man, man feels fear, shame, and then it leads him to hide. The sensory awareness of sin we see is fear and shame. And the action that it makes us take is hiding from God. So let me ask you this. Again, why is it so hard to read God's word? Why is it so hard to pray? Why is it so hard to come out to church? Because in us there is a sense and an awareness of our own sinfulness. And so when we come to church, when we think about church, when we think about coming to God's word, what sin does is says, you're not worthy. You just sinned against God. He ought to strike you down. He's going to turn his face from you. There's fear. There's shame. I don't think I belong here. I don't think I'm ready to read God's word. I don't think I'm ready to pray. And then what ultimately happens, brothers and sisters, we hide. Even if we show up here and sit, we hide before the Lord because we have this heavy awareness of our sinfulness and our sin against God. Now pay attention, brothers and sisters, because as we look at how it disturbed our relationship with God, it will do it the same way horizontally with one another. If we think about it, and we continue to look in Genesis 13, 12, Not only did it disrupt the relationship between God, but it disrupted the relationship between man and wife, Adam and Eve. God asked Adam, why did you do this? And he says, I'm sorry, God, I take full responsibility. This is on me, forgive me. No, he says, God, I gotta be honest with you. It's that woman that you gave me. She made me do it. She made me eat the fruit. I didn't think it was a good idea. Honestly, God, I I really didn't. And yeah, maybe I should have spoke up, but my wife made me do it. The woman that you gave me made me do it. And we see this blame shifting happening. And we see as sin enters that fear is now present, shame is now present, there's a desire to hide, not to be in front, and there is now a blame shifting happening. On top of all that, we know when man was created that they were naked, and yet there was no sense of shame. But once sin entered, even between husband and wife, there was now a sense of shame. They wanted to cover up. I can't say this more clearly. We cannot take for granted what sin has done to our desire for community. We can't take for granted what sin has broken. Why is it so hard for us to commune with God? Why is it so hard for us to commune with one another? Because sin has wedged itself between us. Sin has created a gap to give us a sense of our own autonomy, not just with God, but you know what? I don't really need other people. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm thinking. I know where I'm going. There's a sense of misunderstanding, not just between us and God, but us and others. I can't believe he said that. Did he really say that? What did she say? Did she really say that? There's a misunderstanding of our hearts, not only with God, maybe he's holding out, but with one another. You know what? I think they're holding out on you. Yeah, that's not loving, is it? And sin starts to twist words, hearts, perspective, and it makes us think, 
you know what? I don't really need to be around people. But at the same time, what's the irony, brothers and sisters? Even though we think that we still want to be around people, we still want to be before God. And in that turmoil, in that sense of dissonance, when we're in that context, we feel fear of being judged, not only by God, but by one another. What would they think of me? We feel shame. I don't, I don't really feel ready to be at church. I, I don't really want to come out. And we hide. Sometimes days, weeks, months, years at a time. Why is it so hard for community to flourish? Because sin has wedged itself between us, brothers and sisters. Sin has broken community. It has caused us to fear, caused us to shame, and caused us to hide from God and from one another. I want to share with you personally as well, because I think by doing that, perhaps in an in in inviting and mirroring way, you guys can see also your weaknesses. You know, honestly, as a pastor, it's really hard for me how much to open up about my weaknesses, about my fears, about my shames. And if my job didn't dictate it, there are times I would probably just like to hide and not come to church. As a pastor, I'm always balancing how much of my weaknesses do I share with them and what kind of light do I share with them? How much of my life do I let people in? And many of you guys are like, well, I'm not a pastor and I feel the same way. Yeah, because we're all human. Because sin has disrupted us. As a family man with young children, it's really hard. And I'm not saying that parents' lives are harder, but when you have children, you feel like there's more of you that people can judge. Little comments like, oh, I won't say any examples, but little comments can really hurt deep because we have such a deep insecurity as parents, as if, are we doing a good job? Are we failing our children? Are we giving them the best opportunities? And the smallest comments can be really hurtful. And so it's even hard to invite people over my house. What would they think about the mess? What would they think about the size? You know, I'm always balancing my fear, my shame, and my desire to hide away. And conventional wisdom would tell us, you know what, as a leader, that's probably a good idea. You never want to share your weaknesses too much. Be honest, be authentic, but also be at arm's length. You can't let them in too close or they'll just be stumbled by you. And sometimes I'm convinced of that. You know what, I'll share my struggles, I'll share my sins, only to the point where I think it would encourage you. Never to the point where I think, oh boy, they might look for another church. But I gotta be honest with you guys. I'm prideful. I'm 29 years old. I got two young children, and oftentimes I find myself relying on my education and my experience. And when I talk to some of you folks who are much older and wiser and have a lot more life under them, have a lot more scripture written on your heart, I realize that I'm so small. And then I start to question my capabilities, and then I get discouraged. Some of you guys can relate, and you're not even in the pastorate. You can relate because we have a common struggle. You can relate because sin has disturbed my life in the same way it has disturbed your life. So conventional wisdom would tell us, you know what? Let's keep people at arm's length. 
because we don't want them to know us fully. We don't want to be metaphorically naked in front of anyone and left for judgment. That's what sin has done. It gave us the sense of good and evil, this, this, this insecurity of fear. But what does the Apostle Paul say? None of us will look at Apostle Paul and say, yeah, you know what? He's weak. I, don't, I can't follow him. No, most of us will look at Apostle Paul and say, yeah, he's the man. He's a man of God. Apostle Paul says this, that I will boast all the more of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might rest in me, dwell in me, work in me. And so I wrestle with this text all the time when I feel broken, when I feel like I want to hold back from sharing. I say, no, you know what? If I don't share my weaknesses, my brokenness, then I'm taking away an opportunity for the power of Christ to work through me, rest in me, dwell in me, and be a testimony to others. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to wrestle in the same way. We share in a common struggle. Let's share in the common hope. I need you to pray for me. My desire is often flickering, even though my devotion, I want it to be so strong. Pray for me. Pray for one another. I think we would be shocked to know how much we feel the same type of fear and shape and desire to hide. Pastor Stephen is from New York, so multiply all my weaknesses by two. Brothers and sisters, we have a common struggle, but we also have a common hope here. We mentioned before that many of us here have been here for many years, we've grown up together. Some of us are new. And I think sin has such an interesting way of using time to compound our distance with one another, yet increase our familiarity with one another. If you've been here a long time, if you know one another for many years, and I want to encourage you and challenge you, see one another anew. Because if we always see one another in the same old light, what we do is we project the light of fear and shame and a desire to hide with one another. Can I encourage you guys to do that? Covenant members, Providence members, college students, see one another in new light. Forgive one another. See them through the eyes of Christ. When you go out to eat and break bread, even if you've known him for 10, 20 years, say, hey, this might be weird, but... Tell me your story. How did you get to this point? What has God been doing in your life? You know that moment for those of you guys who are married when you see your spouse in a weird way, in a glimpse for a second, so afresh, and you go, oh, man, it, oh, she felt like a stranger for a second. He felt like a stranger for a second. But it was a pleasant, it was a, it was a, it was a desirable newness where you wanted to draw near. Can I challenge us, as sin wants to wedge in between us, especially for those who have known each other for so long, to take the time to hear about what God is doing in our lives. So the bad news is that sin breaks, has broken, disturbed our community. And hopefully by now you are aware of that and you can see how sin operates. It suggests, it generalizes. It wedges in between us slowly over time. But there's good news. 
there's good news. The reason I wanted to start out with bad news is because unless we understand the gravity of the bad news, we won't truly appreciate the beauty of the good news. If I told you that you had a paper cut, you'd say, oh no, give me a Band-Aid and I'd give you a Band-Aid. If the bad news is a paper cut, then the good news is a Band-Aid. But if I told you, you have a deadly disease and you have no hope, but the good news is there is someone who can save you, you would either even metaphorically or quite literally get down on your knees and say, give me this good news. Over time, especially Many of us who've grown up in the church, we know what sin is, we've heard about it, it's in our Christian jargon, and so we forget that the less we think about it, the smaller we think it becomes. We think it it doesn't really affect us, that it just kinda moves around like an air current, but it's always prowling like a lion. That's the bad news. But this is the good news, let me tell you this, this is the good news. Satan will use the same old tricks to try and break our community with God again and our community with one another. The same old tricks, there's nothing new. It's the oldest tricks in the book. He will try to suggest, generalize, and wedge himself between us and God and us and each other. But God himself, in Genesis 3.15, gives us here what we call the proto-evangelium. Let me break that down for us because I think it'll help us to remember what that is. Proto, protos, first, evangelium, evangelism, good news, proclaiming. Proto-evangelium, Genesis 3.15 is the first announcement of the gospel in seed form where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's talking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, he's talking about Jesus. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. When sin enters, God acts. He says, even though sin has crept in and disrupted our community, your community with one another, your community with me, I'm going to make it right. I have good news for you. Through the seed of the woman is going to come a Savior who will crush the head of the serpent. God says, I have good news. I'm going to make this right. And, and, and we think the woman, mankind, so easily, with such little effort by the serpent, took and ate. But you know what Jesus had to do to look at you and I and, and then say, take and eat? There is this, this beautiful reversal going on here. A commentator notes, it, it was so simple, the act of sin. It was such a little slap in the face that was easily done to God that Eve just simply looked, took, and ate. But in order to undo this, in order for Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium to flourish, to become realized, it took Christ to gaze upon the cross and say, that'll be what I will take. So that when he comes to you and I, he gives us the bread of life and he breaks it. And he says, take, eat. This is the bread of eternal life. The fruit that has condemned all mankind with sin and death that was so easily taken and eaten by Eve, Christ now reverses it. He puts himself on the cross. He takes the punishment that you and I deserve. And by virtue of doing that, he can tell us simply, but 
deeply and purely and lovingly. Now take this and eat. Take and eat. He makes it that simple for us. He says, take and eat. You know, when God kicked out Adam and Eve after eating from the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, he kicked them out to protect them, to love them, so that they wouldn't also eat from the tree of life. After eating from the knowledge of good and evil, if they also then ate from the tree of life, their curse, their damnation would have been secured for all eternity. But because they have eaten in this, eaten this fruit and sin has entered, God kicks them out of the garden so that they can't reach also now the tree of life. But he gives this good news and he says, someone will come and bring this fruit to you. What's the implications of this? The implication is that we don't have to go back to the Garden of Eden, to the land of paradise, to the glory days of the former, because Christ moves us forward. Let me take that a little deeper. The goal for Christians is not to go back to Eden. It's not to go back to the glory days. It's not to go back to the place of regrets. You are not called as a Christian to now think about your regrets and your shames and to go back to try to right those wrongs. Christ has done that for you. You are not called to go back to the glory days and the times of paradise, whether it's in youth group or college where you experience so much joy and relish in that. No, as, as Christian, Christ presses you on and pushes you forward. He says, you think that was good? You think your college ministry, your time in youth group was amazing? I have better things to come. I have more things to come. Many of us, we look back, we look back, we look back, we look back, and even when we look at our Bibles, we say, man, if we could just go back and say, Adam, don't do it! We could reverse all this and we can stay in Eden. We can stay in the garden. We can be naked and unashamed and, 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 and have pure communion with God and with one another, but Scripture teaches us otherwise. The point is never to go back. The point is to be pushed forward, and that's exactly what Christ does. He pushes us forward, and this is also why the Apostle Paul says, I forget what lies behind, and I strain forward for Christ to make him my own because he has made me his own. Where sin entered, it disrupted our relationship with God and it united itself with us, but because Christ unites himself with us all as individuals, the reality here, brothers and sisters, the good news is that not only do we belong to Christ, we belong to one another, as Romans 12, 5 says. We belong to one another. That's good news, that we, we, we belong to one another, that we're called to live this reality through Christ, where fear is done away with, where shame is done away with, where we no longer have to hide, where we can come together in public worship, where we can come together to read scripture, where we can come together to share a common life in Christ, where we can come together in prayer, where we can come together breaking bread. Brothers and sisters, if you feel shame and fear and you often find yourselves hiding, can I encourage you with the good news that Jesus on the cross defeated sin 
so that it could no longer lord that fear over you, that shame over you. It can no longer make you run away and hide. If we understand that, then I believe community can really start to flourish. If we stop underestimating the effects of sin, but also cherishing the depths of the gospel as far as the curse is found, I believe that community can start to flourish. If we are aware of this, to love one another, that we belong to one another, that we share a common life in Christ, that we share a common struggle and a common hope, then I believe community can flourish. And as we close, I want to say this. As amazing and beautiful as it is, the reality is that on this side of glory, we will never fully experience perfect community. But be encouraged because the Spirit is enabling, Christ is leading, and God is waiting. Perfect community is coming. Perfect and deep and intimate community is coming. A time where we will never have to wrestle and struggle with being naked again is coming. So why is it so hard to have communion with God? Why is it so hard to have communion with one another? It's because of sin, but also because of the hope of Christ. Even though community is broken, it is restored in Christ. Let's pray.